you're in. I should always remember that one. Yes, I'm not going to uh, do, do a year in politics, or I'm not going to do two weeks in politics, other than saying that, um, you know, other than COVID, um, we haven't actually had that much in the news. I presume it's because Parliament is uh, closed and uh, MPs are away and journalists. But uh, where I want to start is... Um, yeah, by, I suppose, having said, not looking back over a year, I want to start with um, January the 6th, um, 2021. And, um, you know, we're approaching the um, anniversary uh, of what I would call um, Trump's um, attempted self-coup. I have to admit that I do chuckle somewhat when... Um, some comrades on the left tell us that this isn't or wasn't a, uh, a coup attempt. It was more like uh, the um, Munich Beer Hall putsch, which was an attempt, but an attempt at what? Well, the word putsch and the word coup are synonymous. So what on earth uh, that distinction is, I haven't got a clue. Either way, both the Munich Beer Hall putsch um, and uh, the January the 6th, coup, putsch, whatever you want to call it, failed. Um, but what's interesting to me, um, really, um, just looking at the news over the last few weeks, is how many retired top tree brass um, have come out approaching um, this um, um, anniversary and spoken about how they were ill-prepared uh, for the events uh, a year ago. Um, there's been a, um, a former general talking about how they hadn't war-gamed um, such a scenario. Uh, but um, he's saying, and I presume these retired generals are actually speaking on behalf of serving generals. That's the significance I'm giving uh, uh, to it. Uh, they are talking about having failed uh, on January the 6th to prepare for such uh, an occurrence, that won't happen again. And the significance of it to me is that not only um, are they preparing uh, for a, a similar set of events, what they're also doing is lining up the military um, to protect the military from what they, what, what they say is the threat of extremism uh, in its own ranks. Now, it's just worthwhile taking a step back uh, from that. And for those that are old enough, and I have to confess I am, to remember uh, the events of the Vietnam War, um, what we cannot forget is how deeply divided um, the US Army was. And what we had, as we well know, is on American bases throughout the world, uh, we had unofficial uh, GI papers being produced or smuggled in uh, from ex-GIs. And we had many, many instances uh, of what became known as fragging. Now, I've been told that the origin of that word begins with a fragmentation bomb, um, but so common was it uh, for GIs 
to shoot their own officers or to blow their own officers up, um, that it became, how should you put it, um, uh, an actual danger uh, to the proper functioning um, of the US Army. And indeed, you know, you've, 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 you've seen pictures uh, of the Vietnam War uh, with um, GIs, especially black GIs, basically, you know, with peace symbols on, uh, two fingers up, not that, two fingers up. Um, that the, that the, the lesson that the top brass drew from that uh, was to abandon um, a conscript army. Um, and that meant actually a disproportionate black army because the conscription didn't work on the basis that uh, whoever you were, you were going to get chosen. We all know the story of George Bush, uh, uh, George Bush Jr. and how he served uh, the Vietnam War in the National Guard Air Force. Uh, I think you all know the story of uh, uh, you know, Donald Trump and his uh, feet, how he got off military service. Was it six times because of his feet? Um, you know, if you were rich, in other words, uh, you could avoid the draft and you could certainly avoid uh, frontline service uh, in Vietnam. So the lesson uh, that the top brass learned from that was to go over to a conscript army, a volunteer army. Now, again, there's a danger uh, with that because a, a conscript army, um, you know, as I said, uh, disproportionately had blacks in it. A volunteer army will also have a disproportionate number of the poor. And in America, that means black. So they learned that lesson to abandon conscription. They went over to a volunteer army. And what they introduced was a new ideology. And they introduced an ideology of um, positive discrimination, of anti-racism, uh, um, um, so that the American army didn't embody uh, white supremacist uh, ideology, but embodied some sort of multicultural um, anti-racist uh, uh, ideology. And indeed, just as a, um, an aside uh, on that one, I know someone who was um, involved with uh, Pathfinder books. Anyone know who Pathfinder books um, were and are? These are the, um, this is the SWP in America. And we're not talking about the British SWP. We're talking about the American SWP, which I think nowadays is pro-Cuba, um, a Castroite um, organization, Stalinist organization, uh, if you want, but Trotskyist uh, in its origins. Well, my old friend uh, told me uh, that, did you know we've got this massive order? We've got this massive profits coming in. Um, in terms of Pathfinder books. And he, he said, you'll never guess where it's from, where we get all these orders from. And I, I said, well, got not a clue, uh, tell me. And he said, it, it's the US Army. We are supplying the US Army with books and they weren't supplying the US Army with books by Leon Trotsky, but they were supplying the US Army, believe it or not, by books, uh, books by Malcolm X, right? Malcolm X on sale, on American bases, by, by the US Army. And that shows you the contrast uh, between the Vietnam War of when GIs were producing their own illegal 
uh, uh, journals and uh, people outside the bases were producing journals that were smuggled in and the situation nowadays. It's no longer the case that uh, uh, black GIs are publishing the works of Malcolm X against the army. Uh, the army is supplying Malcolm X uh, itself for the consumption uh, um, of uh, the army. And so this really gives you an insight uh, into top brass thinking, because, you know, on the left, we're used to thinking about Donald Trump. Uh, I don't agree with it, by the way, but we're used to thinking Donald Trump, far right, I agree with that, but Donald Trump, fascist, danger to democracy. And I readily admit uh, that that's what uh, uh, January the 6th was all about. It wasn't a, a demonstration that got out of hand. Uh, it did get out of hand, but the purpose of that demonstration, it was Trump's last throw. And the idea, we all know it, and it's becoming clearer and clearer um, with every uh, day that passes, with every leak that we get from the House investigation into the events of January the 6th, it was clear what he had in mind. Uh, he wanted to intimidate the Senate. He wanted to intimidate one person in particular, and that was his own vice president. And he'd try to persuade Pence uh, to come in with his coup attempt not to recognize the electors uh, of Biden, uh, to disqualify them, and to basically announce that it was Donald uh, J. Trump uh, that had won the election because of uh, cheating, uh, because of fixed machines, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, that was the plan. Uh, desperate, pathetic, uh, my version of those events always was going to be uh, that the army or the CIA or whoever would have acted. And, and indeed, we now know that that was the case, uh, that the chief of staff was giving out instructions to his subordinates, obey me, obey, obey my orders, not the orders of, quote, unquote, the fascists. Right. And he, he reinforced the point. Have you got that? In other words, do not obey the commander in chief. Obey me. That was the instructions that were being put out. Uh, uh, in the run-up uh, to January the 6th, because uh, we all knew that January the 6th was going to be a flashpoint and it wasn't going to be any ordinary uh, demonstration. Okay, so far, so good. But what's interesting about the um, war game exercises that they're now either planning um, or engaging in is that what the US Army is saying is because we've got this danger of extremism in our own ranks, and because the Constitution could be undermined, we've got to be prepared to act. And so we often think that the threat to so-called American democracy comes from Trump, comes from the far right, comes from the Republican Party itself. But I'd also simply say this, uh, that if you listen to the top generals, it also comes from the army itself in defense of the existing army and its ideology against white supremacism. And such a coup uh, in the event of an uncertain election could no doubt happen with the blessing of the Democrat Party. And that's precisely the thinking uh, that's going on now. In other words, looking at the polls, and we're talking about Biden, and the Democrats, 
uh, they don't seem to be doing well. Now that can change tomorrow. Nonetheless, this year we've got the midterm elections. And what the midterm elections are about is, has Biden got a chance of getting through his agenda? Or is he simply going to become uh, a lame duck uh, president? In other words, if we look at the present situation, uh, the Democrats have got a majority in the House of Representatives. It's 50-50 in the Senate. And we have the vice president casting uh, the swing uh, vote. Well, come this year, uh, that could all change. And that's the prediction. And the prediction is amazingly um, so unpopular is Biden and his vice president uh, that it even it, it's quite conceivable if uh, Trump ran again in 2024, it's conceivable that he could win it. Now, given the vagaries uh, of the US election system, uh, you can have a situation uh, of where someone wins, uh, for example, the US presidential election, but loses the popular vote. Now, my guess is uh, that that's the sort of scenario uh, that these generals are talking about. In other words, imagine a situation that Donald Trump loses the popular vote, Whoever the Democrats choose in 2024, we needn't concern ourselves with here, um, but they lose the Electoral College, uh, but they win uh, the popular vote. What does the army do under such circumstances? Uh, well, what they're talking about, what these retired uh, generals are talking about is we would act and we'd act to preserve the army and we'd act to preserve the constitution. I mean, that's in their heads. I'm not saying they are preserving the constitution, because one presumes that the Republicans wouldn't like it. They would do something about it. What they would do, uh, I don't know. But I'm, I'm simply flagging that because we're too used, we're too lazy in terms of our thinking when we look at America to simply say that the threat to democratic rights, the constitution comes from the right. It doesn't come from the Democrats. Uh, it doesn't come uh, from democratic, multicultural uh, uh, generals. Um, so that is something that I, I think we should um, um, think about it, think about. Worthwhile noting uh, that in terms of the House committee investigating the events of uh, uh, January the 6th, it doesn't report uh, until summer, but one would guess that when it does report, having done some argy-bargy with Trump and his allies, uh, that what it will, will reveal uh, was, yes, a, a, a coup attempt, and a coup attempt, of course, that didn't simply happen on January the 6th, uh, that goes back deep into the presidency uh, of Donald Trump, and his constant attempt, remember, that was resisted mostly uh, by the army uh, to involve uh, that institution in domestic uh, affairs, and there was pushback, constant pushback uh, by the army, which was unwilling uh, to back up uh, Trump and Trump looking, looking for opportunity after opportunity uh, to go for that uh, uh, option. OK, let's think about the um, Biden presidency. Build back better, BBB. And it doesn't look like it's going to get through. And if it does get through, it's going to be massively pared down. Remember, uh, uh, Biden's original package was going to be worth, what was it? 6.7 trillion dollars, uh, an awful lot of money. 
even if that spread over um, a whole number of, of years. But this was heralded as a, a neo-Keynesian package. This is uh, uh, Biden uh, basically um, following in the footsteps of FDR and the, the, the New Deal back in the 1930s. Well, it's no longer $6.7 trillion. Dollars. I think it's down to now below two trillion dollars, still a lot of money. But we all know what's happening in the Senate, which, as I said before, is 50-50. What we've got is one Democrat senator basically not playing ball. Joe, is it Minchin? I think he's from Kentucky. I can't remember which bit. Is it West Kentucky, North Kentucky? I can't remember. Either way, uh, it's coal. Uh, that's what he's um, objecting to. But basically, he's a, a Republican who just happens to be a Democrat um, a senator. So what we have is already the appearance, and I think this explains some of the unpopularity uh, of Biden, is his inability uh, to get his own program through uh, Congress. Um, and not because um, of um, Republican opposition, which is um, very solid, but because he can't actually get it through um, his own Democrat um, senators. Okay, just want to put a, a little footnote in on America. I don't think we've got Daniel Lazar here today, but I'll just throw this in. Um, in terms of Dan's um, reply um, in the last paper um, on the question of um, the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. But he's quite right that if you look at this um, democratic right that was introduced as an amendment to the US Constitution, it's got a prehistory. And you can make the argument, and it's been made, that this uh, democratic right goes back to the Magna Carta. Uh, of where the English barons were asserting their right to have arms uh, against the uh, king, against King John uh, in this particular respect. You can also trace it back, and I, I've done it. I have read Machiavelli, the famous Machiavelli. Um, he stood um, for the uh, principle of a militia. He said it's militarily superior. This is when um, you know, um, city states such as Florence and um, Venice and Genoa basically relied on mercenaries, uh, professional soldiers. And uh, if you read any military uh, textbook, you know, um, about history or about the present time for that matter, what it will tell you is that these mercenaries are very fearsome uh, fighters. They, you know, they know their stuff. They know what to do. They know how to handle uh, weapons. But what they are is not reliable. Uh, and if they look like they're going to lose, uh, they scaddle out. Uh, and what Machiavelli argued is that citizens don't do that, that, that what they've got, they've got wives and children, they've got property uh, to defend. And although they aren't professional soldiers, they make more reliable fighters, certainly when it comes to defensive wars. OK, so. The question of uh, a well-drilled militia and the right to bear arms goes back into um, the history of feudalism and pre-capitalism. What uh, Comrade Lazal forgets, 
I think amazingly, is if you look at the programs of the radicals um, in the early years of the bourgeois revolution, they stood against the standing army. And that was a tradition that was taken up by the working class uh, movement. So if you look at the Communist Manifesto, if you look at the Gotha program, if you look at the Erfurt program, this is German social democracy, German communism, German Marxism, they all had that demand in their programs. And what went for the Germans, went for the Italians, went for the French, even went, <laughs> I never knew it until a couple of years ago, even went for the Labour Party when it was formed in 1900, the first Labour Party manifesto uh, in Britain in 1900 had the demand to abolish the standing army uh, and the demand uh, for a popular uh, militia. And the fact that the left today um, uh, find that that demand is so far out uh, really just shows you the political decay that the left has undergone decade after decade after decade, how respectable and how dumb uh, the left um, um, has, has become. You know, what's the idea that you get a parliamentary majority and the army doesn't act in Britain? Well, that was the illusion um, that uh, the left in Britain certainly suffered from. And this uh, neatly allows me to segue into the recent election in Chile of um, President-elect uh, Borat, um, what was it, 50-something uh, percent of the vote, clear majority over his right-wing opponent, but of course all left-wing, uh, left-wingers of a certain age uh, instantly remember uh, the events in Chile. I can't remember when Salvador Allende was elected president. I think it might have been 69, 70. I know when he was overthrown though. And what we were told in Britain, I was a member of the official Communist Party of Great Britain. What our leadership told us is here you look at Chile. This is the British road to socialism in practice because Chile, unlike a lot of Latin America has got a deep tradition of parliamentary democracy and respect of the law. And here you are, you had the election of a, a president and then the putting together of a coalition government. So um, just like in America, you elect the president and what you have is uh, um, either one or a two house um, a parliament. And what the parties that supported President Allende who came from the Socialist Party had to do was to put together some sort of um, deal with other parties. So you had a big communist party, you had a big socialist party. Um, and what they had to do is cut a deal with the Christian Democrats who at the time had opposed to be radical, opposed to be anti-Yankee, anti-Yankee imperialist. Um, so we had President Allende and we had a coalition government mainly consisting of the communist party and the socialist party. But in order to do a deal um, with the Christian Democrats, Allende promised not to interfere with the constitution. Uh, he wouldn't, in other words, touch the army and the courts and uh, those, those institutions. And we were assured, as I said, uh, in Britain, 
that that's exactly what would happen uh, in Britain, that the, the courts could be relied on, the army could be relied on. Well, we had an attempted coup in Chile, it failed, and uh, the workers were armed and then disarmed. And then we had uh, the action itself in September, uh, led by Pinochet, and of course, with the full backing and um, logistical support um, of the CIA. And in the run up to that, uh, we'd seen uh, big demonstrations on the streets uh, by people who were claiming that they were hungry. They just happened to come from the middle classes, the prosperous suburbs of Santiago. But yeah, banging pots and pans, we're hungry, we're starving. And we also had uh, famously the truck drivers uh, strike uh, which crippled uh, Chile economically. Either way, when the coup happened, it was a textbook uh, operation. The left were rounded up. Loads of people disappeared, to use that euphemism. Loads of people ended up in football stadiums. Uh, loads of people fled uh, in exile. Uh, and then the leadership of the official Communist Party were then going around the country saying, Chile, Britain, completely different. After all, uh, Chile's in South America. Like, uh, I think we all knew that. But the, the idea was that you could still have the British road to socialism, the parliamentary road to socialism, the constitutional uh, road to socialism, and the army uh, wouldn't act. So if we, if we look at what's going on now uh, in Chile and Latin America, it's just worthwhile asking isn't it? Why have we had this election? Well, the, the, on, on one level, the answer is easy. Uh, that what you had, uh, um, um, well, until now, because we get the transition um, this year, I think it's in January uh, of this year, uh, from one president to another. But the reason why uh, people voted uh, left uh, for this former um, student radical uh, uh, leader uh, was because of uh, vicious, vicious um, austerity uh, under uh, the justification of uh, neoliberal e economics. And of course, if we look at uh, the Pinochet coup, famously, uh, this ushered in um, a whole period of complete, complete rule by the so-called Chicago boys. This was monetarism um, in the um, extreme. Either way, so yes, the masses uh, were definitely wanting radical change. Here you are, uh, you've got a, a presidential candidate that's promising radical change. True, in the last period of the election campaign, the rhetoric was toned down, but he's from the left. Okay, so what would we expect? Well, in the 1970s, we would have expected the CIA and the Americans to act. Do we think the same now? Uh, and my answer would be no, I don't think so. I, 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 I can't guarantee it. But when we look around at Latin America, we've got radical leftish uh, governments in Mexico, Argentina, Bolivia, Ecuador, and we'll leave Cuba and Venezuela aside. Uh, for the moment. But the point is that the US has basically found itself uh, in a position where it doesn't view uh, such a development 
as a threat in the way that it once did. Now, there are many, many reasons uh, for that in terms of shifting US investments, the end of the Cold War. Either way, uh, we don't have the same reaction that we saw um, in Chile uh, uh, with the overthrow of Allende and many other uh, such regimes, uh, which left tens of thousands uh, of leftists dead, uh, let alone um, um, exiled. Indeed, what we've got, and I know it's part diplomacy, but what we've got uh, coming from Biden is actually him congratulating uh, the president-elect um, and saying that this provides a, a model uh, of democracy. Now, I'm thinking of that because he's actually not so much thinking about Chile when he's saying that. In my view, he's thinking about the United States and, of course, the denialism uh, from the Trump and from the Republican camp uh, that he actually won fair and square and overwhelmingly. And that's actually, of course, what he did. But the point I'm making here uh, is that uh, those of us on the left, and I don't include myself in this, that are looking at Chile uh, as an example to celebrate, uh, really it shows you how much our horizons have, uh, have lowered because Salvador Allende was saying that the changes he was going to usher in would lead Chile to socialism. That was the, the promise. That was the program. This was Chile's road to socialism. What we now have is a promise to you know, uh, end austerity. Uh, we have a, a, a promise to abandon neoliberalism. Um, and that, even in a country like Chile, uh, which isn't a first world country, that's deliverable. It might not uh, um, work. You know, there might be a rebellion from the right. The army uh, um, uh, might, might act. Who knows? Either way, uh, it says something about the left uh, that it invests so much hope, so much, uh, um, how should I put it, um, um, enthusiasm uh, in this election. Of course, it's good that a left winger won as opposed to a right winger, um, but uh, don't get carried away uh, because the danger is precisely because we've got a, um, a president that's committed to work within the system, change the constitution. Actually, he's promising uh, to do that, to get rid of the Pinochet constitution. Nonetheless, what he's actually saying he's fighting for is very limited. Okay, um, let's move on. Okay, um, talking about America, I think a comment on the trial of Ghislaine uh, Maxwell um, is worthwhile. Um, I mean, to the extent I've read um, um, on this subject, um, it didn't surprise me uh, that a jury of 12 um, found her uh, guilty. Um, I know we had the delay and uh, we want more uh, documentation and all the rest of it. Um, but I myself uh, never thought the result was in doubt. I mean, the defense, remember, didn't even put her up um, on the witness box. In other words, you know, she wasn't cross-examined by the um, prosecution. Um, they said, basically, you haven't proved it. Well, come on, guys. Um, you had uh, witnesses who said this is what they experienced. You had employees saying this is what they saw. Uh, you had the conviction of Jeffrey Epstein twice, twice, not once, but twice. 
uh, um, uh, in front of a court. So, so the idea that his closest uh, companion, his you know life companion, didn't know what Jeffrey was up to, surely uh, that is stretching um, you know your credulity uh, beyond anything reasonable. So it didn't surprise me. On the other hand, um, wow, uh, does everyone remember surely the O.J. Simpson? A trial, <laughs> you know, so American juries, just like British juries, uh, can be contrarian. But nonetheless, this wasn't something that you could uh, defend on race. Here we had uh, accusations about sex trafficking, uh, about sex with minors, um, you know, grooming, um, and all the rest of it. And um, so we got the result that we expected. Okay. So a whole number of questions open up uh, with this, and you've been reading the papers, listening to the news uh, as much as I have. And so what we have now is a, a pending gigantic sentence. You know, I don't know what uh, they will decide, but you know, you've had 30 year prison sentence, 40 year prison, prison sentence, a 60 year prison sentence. I mean, this woman is 60 years old. Um, and that's what happened. Remember, remember this bloody guy in Colorado, this um, truck driver, a 110 year sentence um, for causing mayhem um, on the highway that's been uh, taken down to 10, 10 years, which in my view is just still an obscenity. Either way, how the American system works um, is through a system of plea bargaining. And um, this must be causing all sorts of worries uh, amongst all sorts of people, because one presumes uh, that uh, Jelaine Maxwell um, has seen all sorts of things and knows all sorts of secrets, not only about Jeffrey Epstein, of course, who is now dead, but about his buddies, about uh, the people that he was courting. And we know the photographs. We know the history of um, who was flown where, when, and um, all the rest of it. And just starting from the top, uh, there's former uh, President Bill Clinton, starting from the top again, former President uh, Donald uh, uh, Trump. And one presume it goes all the way down in terms of the global um, uh, elite. So there is the possibility, unless she commits suicide in prison and something nasty happens to her, of doing a plea bargaining. Uh, in order to get her sentence reduced um, so that she actually can come out of uh, jail at some point. And of course, this is what's got, uh, I use the term Buckingham Palace, uh, uh, worried. And therefore the stories um, of uh, um, Andrew Windsor having to give up all of his uh, military positions. And more than that, I've also been reading about the possibility of him becoming deroyaled of uh, no longer being a prince, but being a commoner, uh, just like you and me. And if you go and look at his legal team, which is costing uh, the monarch millions, millions, hugely expensive and talented legal team, and look at the loopholes uh, that they're attempting to tie up this case uh, with a civil, civil case, remember, right? You know, stuff about well, this woman doesn't live in America anymore, or, uh, I don't sweat. Uh, I mean, the, the man, um, you know, um, uh, Andrew Windsor, 
um, you know, again, stretches my credulity to the point of breaking. I mean, I, I, I did watch the uh, interview with uh, Emily Mathis, wasn't it, on Newsnight? And uh, I mean, my reaction to it all the way through was, come on, Andrew, do you really expect us to believe that? And I remember his main defence when it came to the invitations to come along to Sandringham or wherever it happened to be. I said, I didn't invite, invite Jeffrey. I invited Jelaine Maxwell plus another. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But basically what he was saying is although he resumed his friendship uh, with Jeffrey Epstein uh, after he served his, was it 18 months, um, you know, soft option, plea bargained uh, uh, deal, Although he resumed his friendship with him, it was really her uh, that he was friends with. Well, she is now a convicted sex trafficker. So what's that say? Um, well, it says a great deal about him, but it also says something, I think, um, about the, um, the ruling classes. And uh, frankly, you know, if you look at your history books, um, you know, if you read um, your scandal sheets, um, this, this behavior um, isn't extraordinary. I mean, just as a, a throwaway, I'm, I'm not an avid reader of the Royal Pages, but I was just, just for example, reading about um, William Windsor, you know, the um, heir apparent one removed, um, kind of what he's Duke of. Um, either way, you know who I'm talking about, um, Charles's eldest uh, son. I was just reading something about him when he was at university. And just all these aristocratic young women lining themselves up to go to bed with him. And the same happened uh, with Harry. Um, so as far as these people are concerned, not only in terms of the social circle of equals that they mix in, has he got, you know, women chasing after him um, all the way? Um, it, it, it must be extraordinarily easy uh, to recruit people who are hard up. Um, who come from a boat broken background, and that's clearly what uh, Epstein uh, went in for. Now, from my angle, uh, when it comes to um, Andrew, we're dealing with something that is ambiguous. I know American law, the age of consent, unless I'm wrong, nowadays is 18, but in Britain it's 16. I do remember various uh, pop stars in the 50s marrying people who are 13, uh, either way, uh, in Britain, uh, that would be uh, legal. Does it make it moral? No, it doesn't. It doesn't make it moral because what we have here is someone with um, enormous money uh, and we have, and we're talking about both uh, um, Andrew Windsor, uh, but also Maxwell and also Epstein. Um, it's an abusive relationship. It might be legal in Britain, um, but is it distasteful? Yes, it's distasteful. But of course, what this poses uh, is something else uh, for the establishment. How they handle it, uh, I don't know. Our tragedy at the moment is that the left doesn't take republicanism seriously. Either they talk about the expense uh, of the monarchy, what they don't talk about is the necessity of overthrowing uh, the existing constitution. So we're not obsessed uh, by the Queen, we're not obsessed uh, by Andrew and who he uh, sleeps with or who he didn't sleep with. We're talking about the constitution for the same reasons that I referred to in Chile uh, with the overthrow 
of Allende and leaving the army intact. The army in Britain swears loyalty uh, to the monarch. That is a counter-revolutionary uh, uh, weapon. Okay, just lastly on, on all of that, um, whatever her sentence uh, ends up being, um, I have to say that I don't uh, uh, approve of it. And I've heard, uh, for example, I know there's been some protests about it, and I did listen to the first interview with Ian uh, Maxwell, her brother, talking about the abominable conditions that she's being kept in. And I agree with him uh, that the US prison system is an abomination. It's got one of the highest prison rates in the world. Uh, you know, and with the war on drugs, um, uh, this is a racist uh, prison, se uh, prison system. It's also, uh, um, uh, how should I put it, um, a vicious, vicious uh, prison, se prison system uh, that's operated uh, by private um, um, enterprise. It hasn't got anything about rehabilitation and using the talents of people. And clearly this woman's got talents um, and she actually should be putting her talents and her energy to the service of ordinary people. And that's what that's the approach I would take. And that's the approach that CPGB takes uh, when it comes to crime and punishment. We are against punishment. We are for rehabilitation, something that they pay lip service to uh, in Britain. Uh, but that's all they do. Uh, all you need to do is look at statistics of how many people in prison uh, not only come from, um, you know, non-functioning family backgrounds, but how many of them cannot even read or write? How many of them start off with a drugs problem and how many then come out of prison uh, with a drugs problem? Prison doesn't work and it doesn't work for people at the bottom of society. And that's what I wanted to hear from someone like uh, uh, Ian uh, Maxwell. Um, we do need uh, uh, um, radical critique of the prison system and we're against revenge um, that, uh, yeah, support the people um, that have exposed Epstein and have exposed Jelaine Maxwell and who are exposing um, uh, Andrew Windsor. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but the idea of locking someone up uh, for decades, uh, I think, is fundamentally uh, wrong. Okay, just last two points. Let's see how the time is going. Yeah, we're on schedule. Two, two more points. Here I am. I know I've got the heating on in my flat, but there I was yesterday out for a walk in balmy London. And we're talking about the heat. Uh, London recorded the highest ever temperature ever recorded on a January the 1st um, on record. And we're not talking, of course, about... Um, uh, ancient times, we're not talking about geological history, but somewhere around about 1850 is when they started um, uh, taking uh, systematic uh, measurements. Well, it was a record-breaking record day um, um, on the 1st. And um, it isn't just about seeing pictures of people emerging from the English Channel um, and going for a, a swim. It would still be bloody cold. But the point here is serious, isn't it? Because that uh, uh, balmy London town also coincided, and this, this really brings you the seriousness of the question, uh, with flash fires in Colorado. I don't know how many people died, but thousands of people uh, displaced. We still don't know how many people died because they're still going through the wreckage 
of, uh, of towns um, um, in the United States. Now, of course, it's a fundamental mistake to draw an equal sign between isn't it a hot day in London and there's a, um, a series of fires in, in Colorado and say automatically, well, that's uh, global warming. Uh, that that's a mistake. On the other hand, the the, the you know the, the reoccurring pattern um, is unavoidable. The number of fires, the number of floods, the number of extreme weather conditions, which I include uh, the record uh, temperatures in London um, yesterday. I include that in it. That this tells you um, something that is to me now undeniable. And that is, first of all, global warming. And what we've got there is now, uh, I think, irrefutable uh, evidence that the biggest factor uh, in all of that is the human role. And what we're talking about in terms of the human role is fundamentally, if you want to call it, uh, name it on anything, it's capitalism. And the fundamental thing about capitalism, which makes it so difficult for these governments uh, to stick to their climate uh, um, limits and their pledges uh, isn't simply, you know, the car economy. It's the very nature of the system itself on a more fundamental level. And that is that it's based on accumulation for the sake of accumulation. It has to accumulate. That's the fundamental law uh, of capitalism. And so we have a, um, an, a social economic system that is profoundly, profoundly anti-ecological. And we know that even if they stuck uh, to their pledges that they made up there in Glasgow uh, last year, that even then, if they stuck to those pledges and implemented those, pro uh, those pledges, we've still got not just decades, but hundreds of years ahead of um, um, you know, climate change. In other words, if we take, for example, uh, the polar ice caps and the warming there is way beyond anything that we're getting uh, down here in, in Britain, that what you've got is 100 or 200 years more melting uh, to take place. That's built into the system as it now exists, which puts in jeopardy, as the latest reports that we've had in terms of hurricanes, um, you know, cities like New York, cities like uh, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, but all the way around the world, uh, this will continue. And so clearly something has to be done. And um, while the capitalists might act at some point, if they do act, they will act in a way that's against our interests. And the only logical, uh, rational outcome clearly has to be uh, a system change. Who can bring about a systems change? Not to uh, insulate Britain. I don't claim that they claim that. But who, who is the most realistic candidate? I would say the only realistic candidate is the working class. What does the working class need in order to carry out that system change? It needs a communist party, not a broad left, not a party that compromises with capitalism to the point of where it says we're going to leave the system and the constitution intact. No, we need a radical break from the logic of capitalism. Um, and that, that is going to need a, a serious organization. So those that are telling us uh, that we're aiming too high, we say, well, no, we're aiming 
for what is necessary for human civilization to survive, because that's what's in jeopardy, even if they stick to their climate pledges, which they are not going to do. Okay, last point. This is very much a um, scratchy head and have a think about things, um, New Year type uh, thought, because what do we have on Christmas Day? We didn't just, I didn't have turkey. I sat there and mumbled humbug at the whole bloody thing. But uh, what, what else did we have other than um, turkey and uh, Christmas pud and uh, all those lovely things? We had the launch of this um, James Webb Space Telescope. And that went up from uh, Guiana. I think it's French Guiana, isn't it? Um, on a European um, rocket, uh, a NASA project that clearly, you know, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but has been in planning and in development for decades now and is drawing upon some of the, the world's, you know, most brilliant engineers and scientists and um, astronomers. And, you know, it's got X thousand parts that have to work perfectly because its orbit in terms of the Earth is way beyond the moon. You can't send astronauts as you could up to fix it like they did the Hubble. And having mentioned the Hubble, I don't know what the statistics are, but isn't this telescope meant to be something like a thousand times more powerful than Hubble? Um, I think we, we all, when we look at the pictures that came back from the Hubble spaceship, I know they put it through computers so that we can they bring out the colors and the contrast, but some of those images are just absolutely stunning. Um, how much scientists, on the other hand, have actually learnt, I don't know, I'd have to talk to a scientist about this. Uh, to me, um, yeah, you know, looking at a, a supernova um, or looking at two galaxies uh, colliding or, or looking at images um, of an exoplanet uh, uh, that they can detect orbiting um, a distant sun, all of that is absolutely fantastic and mind-blowing. And what this um, James uh, Webb telescope promises to do again is of a greater order. And what we have is the promise, and I'm sure they will deliver it, is we'll have pictures, okay, in infrared and they'll put them through computers, but images of, I think the figure is 100 million years after the Big Bang. Forget my figures, right? I haven't got them in front of me for, for memory. The universe, the, the present day universe is something like 13.4 billion years old. Um, we, 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 we've got evidence of the Big Bang. It, it, remember, it was famously uh, detected by accident. Was it in the 50s or 60s? Anyway, the guy got a Nobel Prize for accidentally discovering what is now called the Big Bang. And what we had is this massive, massive expansion of the universe from a, a singularity. Um, which had all the present matter of the universe uh, concentrated into one tiny, tiny single point. And after that um, initial expansion, it took something like, this is my, again, memory, something like 100 million years uh, for the various atoms to form. And we had the first stars, which of course then exploded. And I think our star, our star, the sun and the planet that we're sitting on uh, today is a second generation star, a second generation 
Um, either way, they are, they'll be able to push back uh, to the very origins of the first stars. This is what they look like. My, my thinking on this one, though, is um, although I'm stunned by the technological achievement and uh, marvel uh, at the images that they can produce, I've just got this thought that in terms of um, uh, the Big Bang, in terms of the first stars and what they look like, what they would be made up um, from, basically we've got uh, theoretical physicists uh, that have been saying this stuff uh, for decades and decades, going way back to the early part uh, of the 20th century. Um, and that was done overwhelmingly uh, using a pen and paper. In other words, what I'm thinking of is people, most notably, but one amongst many, I'm thinking of um, Albert Einstein and uh, his uh, general relativity and special relativity and his contention uh, that uh, Newton's version of the universe needed modifying, uh, that we weren't dealing with this sort of stability uh, that Newton had predicted that we were dealing with something very much uh, different. And indeed, the most famous thing, of course, about Einstein, which they did prove, I think in about 1920, is the idea that space um, actually curves, that gravity actually acts on space. Now that was worked out, as I said, using pen and paper. It didn't take, um, you know, a space um, telescope that's cost billions uh, to do that, nor did it take these, again, massive, massive and hugely expensive um, colliders that they've got um, in France and Switzerland. I say France and Switzerland because the European CERN, doesn't it actually go into the territory both of Switzerland and uh, France and they put around these subatomic particles and blast them together and you see the neutrinos come out of them that last, you know, a flash, well not a second, but you know, a tiny, tiny moment uh, in time. Now the point I was just going to wanting to come to um, is twofold and that is in physics today uh, what you have is a big disjuncture uh, between um, Einsteinian physics that can get you your um, space telescope up there that can um, predict gravitinos, uh, that can uh, say that space is curved, and all of that can be proved um, using various uh, experimental techniques. But the theory was there. The theory was there at the beginning um, of the 20th um, century. And then we've got something else, and we've got what is called quantum phys physics, um, the, 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 the physics of atoms and below that, smaller, smaller than uh, atoms. And what we have there is a completely different set of laws um, operating and a different set of predictions. And quantum physics works in a completely counterintuitive way uh, compared with Einsteinian physics. And what the big question for theoretical physics is today is how you marry the two laws of physics, which both work out in terms of predictive ability. We've got quantum computers being developed precisely on uh, that base. How do you actually join these two um, different laws operating um, in the universe? Well, my contention is that um, 
the answer will come maybe through uh, computer programs and artificial intelligence, but fundamentally it will come from the same place uh, that uh, Einsteinian physics came from and quantum physics came from. Fundamentally pen and paper, uh, even if that's nowadays a computer screen, it will not come uh, through the James Webb telescope. It will not come uh, through particle colliders. I could be wrong. I could be talking absolute rubbish. Uh, nonetheless, um, that's my sort of, um, how should I put it, uh, big thought of um, 2022. Um, I, I think it is just worthwhile saying, uh, therefore, um, why the hell are they doing these things? Why have this telescope? Well, I'm all in favour of it. But why is this going hand in hand with more talk and money being invested, both by America and China now, um, into getting back to the moon and moon bases on the pole um, on the moon where there's water and where they can set up a permanent um, station in order to leapfrog to Mars. You know, Elon Musk wants to get to Mars uh, before he dies. And he says he, as long as he gets a soft landing, um, that's fine by him. And I've, I've got no problem with that, except to say, uh, that it does strike me as an inordinate waste of money. And uh, given the problems we have here on Earth, it, it does strike me that those projects are a way, not a cynical way, but a way of giving up on Earth and giving up on Project Earth. And that's our home planet. That's what we're evolved to live in. This, these are the conditions we thrive in. Uh, not airless. I mean, I know it's got a little bit of air, but not Mars, uh, not the moon, uh, Earth. That should be. Um, our project. And I think what you've got with a section of the ruling class, and I think it's an American ideology, uh, and you had it, remember, with Captain Kirk and um, USSS, is it USS? US Space, whatever the hell, it, anyway, whatever the hell, United Plan, anyway, whatever the fuck it was called, uh, Enterprise, is you've got this ideology of the endless frontier, uh, which might be true uh, up to the um, beginning of the uh, 20th century or end of the 19th century, but the idea that humanity's um, destiny lies with the stars, um, I, I don't share that. I think humanity's destiny is here on Earth. And yeah, our curiosity um, will explore the universe and the origins of the universe. But as I said, uh, I actually think that the biggest breakthrough there, bizarrely, will come in someone's head through someone's brain uh, as opposed to these wonderful machines uh, that we're capable uh, of building nowadays. That's it. Thanks, Dan. Okay.